You're listening to Tabletop and Beyond with your host, Justin. But before we get started, how was your geek week? And co-hosts, Dan and Jason. You have to be willing to let the dice help you tell the story. Okay, look, this year, I'm going to stop mispronouncing words. Join us as we cover board games to war games and beyond. And welcome back to Tabletop and Beyond. I'm your host, Justin. And Dan, you're here with me tonight. What? I know, right? What? (laughs) Where am I? Will you take me home? Sorry, I wandered into your podcast. Just excuse me. I'll I'll just be on my way. I'm very sorry. (laughs) Well, welcome back. It feels like it's been a minute, but that's just because we've been recording some other shows and you've been doing your thing and it's all good, though. You record things without me, don't you? You don't. You don't want to record with me like you used to. Listen, uh, you know, you're always welcome to come and talk Warhammer with us, but I have a feeling that you may not, it may not be your gig. I do a lot of pensive listening and I'm thinking about it and I'm processing it, but some of those episodes are better for me as a listener than I am as a, you know, than, than participating as a, as a, as a co-host. So great stuff. I listen to every show and uh, can't wait to uh, hear more. We are very fortunate, I think I've mentioned this on the Talking Warhammer segment of our show, that um, here in Northern Virginia, we've made some, um, I've made some good connections with um, some of the most competitive wargamers in uh, the Age of Sigmar kind of uh, uh, game. Right. So one of them was on the show last week, uh, Sergio Ortiz, and um, I put against him multiple times. And he just got selected to be on the um, practice squad for Team America that will wow. go to the European um, Team Championships. Well, that's so, cool. Yeah, it's a pretty big deal. Um, so he's uh, I think I think he may get selected as like an alternate to get in at, at one point. So I think that's really great. That's hey, so, he made the list. That's fantastic. Good for him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We exactly. wish him all the best. Well, we're missing Jason this week. He's out getting wined and dined and schmoozed, unlike the rest of us suckers. Yeah. So yeah. I had know. sloppy joes tonight, so there was no <laughs> no whining, dining, nor schmoozing, but the yeah, slop exactly. and the joe. I just had tacos, and you know, I mean, it's a good night when you have tacos. Yeah, the difference between a sloppy joe and a taco is largely the carb that you put around it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the other topics. <laughs> that is true. Well, we have a good show for you guys tonight. Uh, this show is being prompted by the release of X-Wing ver- uh, Edition 2.5. And we're going to get into that a little bit. But the topic of tonight's show is why do war games need new editions? Yeah. And we've put together a pretty good stuff. Dan's done some historical research, and I think that we've got you know some experience that we can talk about the necessity of new editions on Wargaming. But before we get there, Dan, how was your Geek Week? Well, you know, you guys haven't seen me for a while, so I've got a pile of geek stuff, but I'm just going to do the tippy-top, um, the top things that came to mind. So last 
Saturday, my son, I got my son because uh, for uh, his grades, he, I owed him some allowance and I got him a Rubik's Cube oh, on nice. Saturday. And so by Sunday afternoon, this thing was very randomized. Let me say, he's nine years old <laughs> and he's just, you know, he's not a boy who is good with frustration. He is not chill, right? He He gets frustrated and I'm obsessive. So... Around the time he decided to just chuck it behind himself and go watch a movie, I decided to go on YouTube and learn how to really solve Rubik's Cubes. Like nice. solve it, solve it, like the professionals solve it, the guys yep. who compete. And so the competition is not about sol- it's not about how you solve it, it's about how fast you solve it. Exactly. And so what I had to learn was all of the algorithms and strategies to get to you know, solving, you know, one face, then a bottom layer, then a middle layer, then a top face, then top layer, yep. and the whole thing is solved. It's an eight-step process. And you have to learn these hand motions to make it fast. And you have to learn notation for, for cubes. Like w- w- where you do a rotate, do you do it clockwise, counterclockwise, top, bottom, left, right, all that stuff. Um, and um, combos, you have to learn like a right hand trigger combo and a left hand trigger combo. All this stuff is like way important. And the weird thing about it is, is I don't understand how the algorithms work, but they do work. So if you follow right. them meticulously, you look at you look down at it, and suddenly you're like, bam! Oh, that just fixed itself. I have no idea how I did that. So. Um, it's fascinating. I was really fascinated by cubing, Rubik's cubing. I think puzzling is part of the the gamer world that we almost never talk about. But um, I'll tell you what, uh, it really taxed my brain, and I spent a lot of time on a wired YouTube video that was about twenty minutes on cubing, <laughs> and uh, I spent at least yeah, it was about two and a half hours. I start and stopped and start and stop, but I. I I, I had to put in a lot of hours to get that first cube solved. Um, I had to teach myself all that stuff. So it was super nerdy and super fun. Um, I was in a pretty stressful job for a little while back around. Oh, man, this was in 2007, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, we were working in a bullpen area. So there was like six of us in this kind of open space. We all had our own little cubes, but no walls in between us, right? Um, just like a table in the middle, like kind of a common area type thing. And, um, we had a whole bunch of different puzzles there Mm. on the table that when you just needed a little bit of a break, you could go over and mess around with. And one of them was the Rubik's cube. Mm. And, uh, one of the guys there knew how to do it. So he taught me how to do it. And I got to the point where I was solving it in like two minutes or something like that, you know, like super fast, but you give it to me now and, I I've forgotten like I can get it to the point where I need to I need a little bit of help on the moves on the bottom layer. Yeah. Right. Did you do like, the the white lily white cross strategy? I don't think I knew the oh. names of the strategies. Mm-hmm. He just told me and there's something to deal with like a fish eye. Yes, that you we gotta called get it. to the fish, yeah. Yeah. yeah so I was at yeah, the fish and like I can get it to that point and then after that like I, I have forgotten because I have not kept up my Rubik's cubing since then so i'm serious these algorithms they were nine ten step algorithms you had to do them perfectly you had to execute each algorithm perfectly or you messed up the whole thing and you started back from the beginning right because in order to make progress you have to mess up the stuff that you accomplished fixed one thing and then put everything back together yep 
over and over and over and over again. And the funny thing about these algorithms is that they work depending, no matter the conditions because they're bulletproof algorithms for this these these puzzles. You just yeah. have to apply the right algorithm to the right problem and it solves itself. That's why these guys can just do it so fast. It's crazy. So I'm uh, good for you for being a two-minute guy. My gosh. So I confidently handed the Rubik's Cube back to my son this morning, and I'm like, mess it up all you want. I can fix it. <laughs> <laughs> now, in the 80s, I was a kid. These were a big deal in the 80s. It was a real yep. huge fad. We, I remember pulling stickers off, moving stickers around. We would take the pieces out and reconfigure it. And we had all these cheats that were always horrible. It was yeah. it defeated the purpose of the entire pre thing. pre YouTube, right? Where yes, you know, where where you could look it up and be like, oh, so that's how you do it. Um, I I noticed. I think I got a Rubik's cube for my son one time, and I noticed that the there was instructions in on how to solve it. Oh, really? In the packaging, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. I didn't get that far. <laughs> Me and YouTube. Anyway, enough on that. It's it's way more fascinating than I ever imagined. So um, give it a go. If that if it's a solitary thing too, it's solitaire. So you don't. Yeah. You know, um, it's it's fun about that. Okay, so a few weeks back, I played Alien Artifacts with Jason and Sean. Alien Artifacts is a card game that's supposed to take about an hour. It's about building ships, developing technology, exploring and explore, exploiting planets in your empire. Um, I, a couple of things that popped out at me about this game. First of all, it was fun. I had a great time. It was, it was just a good game and enjoyable. And, and everybody else who played enjoyed it, the other two guys. The, uh, one thing is there's this factor when you play a game and you, you learn it for the first time and you win it. It gets like a halo effect in your brain. Oh, so yeah. okay. I like won, so I'm like, yeah, that game is amazing. I would love to play that again. <laughs> but I won mainly because it was new to all of us and we had misinterpreted one rule or I'd forgotten to read one phrase in one card and made some false assumptions, right? And Which worked out in my favor. And it was really getting under Jay's skin. He really wants a rematch. So, um, <laughs> he didn't mention that last podcast, but no, way. no, he, well, we got a lot going on that, that recording when he posts on YouTube for our listeners, that will be, I was in the recording session where we, we, uh, put down the, um, we had the cards set out and what he'll do is it's not, you don't watch our gameplay. He just uses the setup to explain the game and explain what he liked about it and stuff like that. So, nice. um, it's a good game. Uh, th- another interesting thing about that is, board game depreciation that game came out in 2017 Mm -hmm. i've been noticing a pattern with games that are four five six years old that maybe were overstocked and are sitting in inventories aren't moving and i think there's an interesting conversation to be had about you know we tend to sometimes we chase the latest hotness of the latest board game go oh it just came out the latest kickstarter the latest the latest right i'm one of these guys i like a value I like getting some value out of a game. Um, you know, I'd rather pay $50 than $100. I did that with Simon over the holidays. You know, there was yep. a Simon sale. And I, I I think this is another topic maybe for another game is to talk about another, another day is to talk about board game depreciation. And when's the right time to jump in on, on a game um, to stretch out your buck? Because nobody should buy every game all the time. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, but... and i think you should get what you want yeah and i think it's kind of interesting because i think it'll depend on the game right like for example if you go to buy puerto rico 
I think that that's still sitting at $29. Like, yeah. and it has for the last 10 years. You yes. know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, but I do think it's interesting how it's easy uh, in the in the world of a hundred to two hundred dollar board games that we're seeing, right? Like you you can't get Gloomhaven for less than hundred dollars, and you can't yeah. get some of these Simon games right out of the gate for less than one hundred fifty two hundred dollars. And let's not let's not talk about games workshop games, right? Yeah, like yeah, 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 <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. So you're, you're in another you're talking, league. Yeah, you're talking you know triple digits for some of these board games. Um, so, you know, a $30 for a Puerto Rico is like, that seems reasonable, right? Yeah. Um, but some of these games might just be overpriced because the market is a little inflated due to hype. Yeah. The hype and the, they, they printed a lot of them and everybody bought it, but it didn't necessarily take off the way they thought it would. But, you know, um, the different. Uh, game shops bought too many of them five years ago and mm-hmm. now they're looking at back inventory going we should liquidate some of this stuff so we don't take it as a loss year after year after year after year anyway i wonder i wonder if um they are take if like there's because jason bought this game for like 20 dollars or something like that yeah right but it, it msrp'd way higher than that when it came like out. he said it fit for 40 something yeah so it's um, so lost half, half its price. value in five years. Do you think that that like the the he bought it at Second Charles? Do you think Second and Charles still made a little profit off of that? Uh, I would expect yes. That well, they they're in business to for business, right? So I, I mean, I would, I, you would I, expect that. But I would if make they're that, like, we just got to get this off the if, shelves. If they right? bought it, if they bought it, kind of like um, you know, like a Marshalls or a Ross Dress for Less situation, where they just take a pallet of something that didn't sell. Yeah. And now they, it's still marked down off of MSRP, but they, they, they bought it for pennies on the dollar. Right. Um, that's a thing. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Alien artifacts right now is on Amazon for $24. I don't know what the MSR MSRP was, but, um, it's an interesting problem because, a, a, a very popular game with lots of hype will have a decent price, Mm-hmm. And it won't go. It won't depreciate that much, but maybe a B or C tier title that might just be the same amount of fun. You'll see some depreciation, and then they'll disappear completely, and they'll go out of print. Right. And see our other episode on dead games. So we, we spent <laughs> right. a lot of exactly. time on that. Exactly. On that one. So anyway, interesting talk. So I, you know, I kind of like a five-year-old game right now. I, you know, if the art's good and the gameplay's fun. I I'm kind of sold. I mean, you know? if you hadn't been hyped up for it in 2017, and you're just now discovering it, it's as if it's a brand new game to you anyway. Yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> so. Well, that that's me with uh, Moloch. Um, yeah. The the eight the smog thing. Still haven't played it yet, and I've got another expansion coming in the mail. <laughs> nice. So I'm two expansions and the core game. Never played it. But I have used the minis in RPGs. So. <laughs> oh, very good. Yeah. So, ding. <laughs> yeah, win-win. Got a, a little bit of money's worth. But I'll play it. I'll play it. I'll get into it. Um, we need to do a review on it is what we need that's, to do. That's on my list. It's on our list. Yep. It's, just, it's a calendaring problem. It's a win problem, not a not a not not an if. It's a win. Definitely. Definitely. Right. That was my very long Geek Week. But considering that uh, Jason's not here, I think we're, I think we're okay. <laughs> well, I'm going to spare you guys from the painting update, which I did do some, but um, you know, I'll, I'll say that for another day. Um, my oh, I have, a, week... I have a bone to pick with you. Oh, uh-oh. What's that? <laughs> About painting. 
Oh, no. Remember when it was really cold, right? And I was like, hey, and I went on our Discord and I was like, hey, is there good rattle can primer out there that people use? And you're like, don't use rattle can primer. It's too cold. Don't use it. Yeah. Come over to my house and we'll prime. And I'm like, I have hundreds of minis to prime. He's like, and you're like, don't bring them all. And I never came over because scheduling is hard. (laughs) We've just identified. That's true. And now the weather's warming up and I still don't know what good rattle can primer to get for all these minis. (laughs) Because the barrier of entry between buying a rattle can or buying an airbrush is kind of night and day difference. It is. I will send you you a video. So Vince Venturella did a video on like how to best rattle can. Yeah prime your minis and it's not only like what are the best cans to use but how to do it because it is he's good he's good he's really good i like yeah and it's too easy to clog all the little details with a rattle can because you can easily like spray them too close and all of a sudden you got like primer just dripping down your minis yeah yeah, yeah, you know and that's the and that's the problem so um i'll send you the video of his it was an excellent video on priming like really, really. I good. need. I so maybe you already sent that to me, and if you did, I apologize. I don't think I did. I don't. Okay. I don't think I did. In fact, I think it came out after our conversation, and I thought about it. Like, hey, Dan would really like this, but then I, you know, forgot about and, it. And so. it's not that I, I am opposed to coming to your house with all my minis. It's just working in Time. like, <laughs> it's like, hey, if I have thirty minutes or an hour free, yeah. and it's warm, and there, you know, it's not that windy outside, and it's sunny, I can go out on a piece of cardboard, and prime a hundred minis. And call it good, and I can do that like at will without right. without planning. Otherwise, it's like, what would I take over to Justin's? Which one should I prioritize? Right, right. <laughs> Which ones do I actually want to paint? Which one should you know that whole thing? So that's why. Yeah. I had it. But you were very mm-hmm. generous to offer. So you were talking about painting in your Geek Week, and I interrupted you with my bone to pick. <laughs> well, so I, I was going to say that I'm not going to talk about painting in my Geek but, Week. But we did talk about painting because the barrier of entry for non-painters is raised by guys like you that's like, don't do that. Do the hard thing. And I'm like, I don't want to do the hard thing. I want to do the easy thing. Help oh, I know. I know. Sometimes we make it harder than it is. But the thing is, is I have a couple of minis, a D&D minis that I overprimed and just kind of wrecked some details on them. So uh, with a rattle can. So I mean, how much? I've been there. You don't really need to fully cover everything with primer. If you just hit, you know, if... If it's if it's eighty percent covered, who cares? Yeah, I think it depends on the miniature itself. Like if it's resin, then you really need to like cover it all. Yeah, you know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Yeah. These um, are all just plastic. Yeah, and if it's hard plastic, uh less so, you know. Yeah. I and, and the key will be honestly at the end is trying to get um a um oh my gosh, the word I cannot believe the word just um a um Oh, the word resin's in my head. It's the um, the spray coating that seals it. Yeah. Um. So you just do like a sealer over it, and there's a word out there that I, like everyone's gonna laugh at me. Or a... It's not a lacquer because that's like for wood. It's, it's for um. Wood. Oh my gosh. I, I, we anyway, sound stupid right now. It'll come. It'll come to me it'll like in five minutes. I'm we, gonna start shouting it. Um. We're, we're gonna but anyway, edit all this you, out. <laughs> if you just spray that over it, and they have some spray cans of those too, yeah. then it seals all the painting in, and it makes them hard. It doesn't get your oils on the fingers, and then the paint doesn't come off. So, yeah. you know, the point is is that, you know, if you don't get it 100% covered with primer, then it'll probably be okay because you're going to seal it up. To um, seal it, yeah. Anyway, you know, so, yeah. I do anyway. want to start. I'm just like, I just don't want to buy an airbrush set up because I don't yeah. want the wife aggro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I hear you. All right, ya. I'll stop. So, I, I've, I've been taking over your your Geek Week. Oh, no, it's all now. good. It's all good. So, I mean, my Geek Week was pretty simple. So, I've been doing a lot of planning for our website lately. Um, I've been going um, together with Dan Herrera and Jason, and we're, we've been mapping out, like, what we want on the War Cry section of cool. the site. I think we're really excited about some of the content we're bringing. There's, the interesting thing about War Cry is there's not a lot of... Um, not a lot of like web content out there for Warcry. See, um, and what is out there is good, and it's like a good summary of you know like what units there are, like what some of the strategies are, and things like that. But it's just really hard to read. Like they're on websites that are just like not laid out very well and you know apologies to if i'm offending your website but you know it, it's just like you pull it up on mobile and your your phone gets attacked with ads yeah. and you can't even see like the text there's because so there's so many ads that. pop you know and you're just like uh like what kind of website is going on here you know and so we came up with like a, i think a, a layout that's going to be pretty good it's kind of like taking a baseball card philosophy with with each of these war bands Nice. And having, like, consistency across where you can, like, pull it up, get all the information you need at, a, at a, like, a pretty quick glance to understand what the Army is. And then underneath that, you've got more, like, in-depth articles about their strategies and strengths and weaknesses and stuff like that. So that you can compare, like, apples to apples, figure out what kind of warband you want to do, and um, and then kind of dive in after that, you know. So I think Sounds I think cool. we're trying to make our, our website a little bit of a differentiator in terms of accessing the content for Warcry. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Just easy easy to read, easy to get to. So we've been planning that out. I've been doing, obviously, some editing. I finished up the Book of Boba Fett uh, watch party stuff on there. So uh, thank you for writing those up, Dan. I apologize for sitting on sitting on them for a little bit. I, I didn't realize I had them in my inbox, and that was all No, no problem, no problem. <laughs> the point is, is that uh, that's done, and I know that the new season of Picard is coming out, and that uh, you're planning to review that. I think once it all comes out, right? Uh, we'll, we'll we will check it out. Um, okay, I'm not sure yet. I I will be watching it. It's just a matter of when. Um, uh, I think Paramount Plus right now has a coupon if I think it expires today. In fact, so. I might before right after the podcast take a quick look see if I can just grab it, but yeah, um, yeah some of those shows need to just be watched all at once. Um, I can't yeah. with Star Wars. I just can't help myself. I have to watch it as soon as it comes out that day. I just <laughs> chomping at the bit. Trek, I can kind of drag my feet a little bit. I used to be a huge Discovery fan, and I've totally lost all my enthusiasm for Discovery. So it's been going for season four, and I have not been. Yeah, considering I, I was word of ma- I was word of mouthing that show for a long time, and then it decided to tank, and I'm like, well, gosh, I'm sure glad I was word of mouthing this show. I know, right? <laughs> Don't watch it now. Yeah. So the uh, other thing that happened this week is really kind of cool. Um, we had put out a uh, game review of the Call of Cthulhu starter set. And um, put that up on YouTube, and I decided to reach out to Chaosium, the company that uh, handles uh, Call of Cthulhu. They do a lot of other um, RPGs as well. Um, some of them are kind of known. Some, I mean, they're kind of quirky uh, ones. Like they have like a Pendragon, which is like Knights of the Round Table. 
Yep. Um, and uh, their other big one besides Call of Cthulhu is RuneQuest. And what Jason and I didn't know is that RuneQuest was actually first published in, like, 1975. Like, yeah. it was first written in, like, the late it's, 60s. It's old school. Yeah, It's very it's, old school. It, it's right along with um, D&D. It was, yeah. it was one of the first. Right now we think of, you know, uh, Paizo stuff as being the, the alternative, right? Um, yep. The, what's their game again? Um, it's... Uh, uh, Pathfinder. Pathfinder. Sorry. Yeah. We are losing it tonight, folks. <laughs> Pathfinder and Starfinder. Uh, yeah. Enamel. And, enamel is what the word is. But I, you can I, spray enamel. <laughs> I remember in the 80s. Exactly. Enamel. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Universe. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, enamel. We're the worst. We're getting old. We're getting old. Don't get old, people. Stay young forever. Forever young. Um, long story short... I remember RuneQuest being, it was like, well, are you going to play D&D or are you going to play RuneQuest? And I remember when Christmas, we got a role-playing game under the Christmas tree. It was not either of those two. It was Powers and Perils, which was oh. a horrible, horrible game. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't get D&D. We didn't get great. RuneQuest. We got Powers and Perils. <laughs> so, Wah, wah. But yeah, yeah, I remember that. I remember being in game stores and seeing a lot of that stuff and going, wow, this is, if you're not doing D&D, you could be doing RuneQuest. So. so yeah, so we reached out to Chaosium and we said, hey, we just did a review of uh, Call of Cthulhu, your starter set, and we would really like to um, review anything else you'd like to send us and, you know, get some people on the podcast. And almost immediately we said, we got, I got a response saying, hey, thank you so much for, you know, reviewing uh, Call of Cthulhu. Would you like to do RuneQuest? Cool. And they said, we'll send you the starter kit for free to check out and uh, to do a review. And I said, yes, please. So literally within minutes, like I had a shipping notification um, for Whoa. the starter set coming to me. But what's even cooler is they gave us access to um, some downloadable PDFs to get started on the reading and the rules and stuff like nice. that. So um, it's going to be awesome. I'm, I can't wait to uh, do a review of this. And, of course, to do a proper review, we need to run a session or two yep. with it. So I'm looking forward to, within the next month, running a session of RuneQuest just to try it out and see what it is. This is not the 1976 edition no, 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 of no. the game. Obviously, it's the latest edition that they have. I'm not sure exactly when, when this one was put out, but it's fairly recent, I think within the last few years. So, um, But it looks like a lot of fun. It looks really interesting. Uh, so. I'm, I'm really excited that you're working with Chaosium. One of the things I, I haven't mentioned in the news, but I'll, I'll give a Chaosium a shout-out. They're one of the game companies that is donating um, proceeds from uh, Call Cthulhu Pay What You Want Adventure. Uh, they're uh, they're uh, donating their proceeds to Ukrainian refugees. Oh, nice. Uh, International Committee of the Red Cross, United Nations Refugee Committee, Save the Children and Doctors Without Borders. And the adventure is Does Love Forgive for Call Cthulhu Pay As You Want. And that can be found on DriveThruRPG. Awesome. So, we'll uh, we'll put a link out there for that too. Yeah, they, they um, that's they don't have to do that, and that's very cool that they are. So, um, uh, yeah, yep, yep, yep. So if you're a Call of Cthulhu fan and you want to plunk down some cash for an adventure, you will be helping um, uh, folks who need help. 
And uh, uh, there's a lot of high praise for those Call of Cthulhu adventures out there, by the way. A, yeah. a lot of them are very well written. Written by big fans of H.P. Lovecraft and, and the horror you know, genre. And they're hard so, to write, right? It's much easier oh, to write Blast yeah. Stormtroopers, blow up the Star Destroyer than it is yeah. how do I drive the players insane. I mean, that's way more difficult. Well, and it's how do I write a mystery? Really, yeah, like a real, an excellent, mystery. a real, honest yeah. to goodness mystery, not just like a, oh, hey, this is a weird thing that happened along the way to you killing the bad guy. You yeah, know? yeah, it's um, like <laughs> hack and slash, clue, hack and slash, clue, hack and slash, cool, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but no, those adventures are a lot of fun and and, and fantastic. So um, I'm excited to be kind of working with Chaosium a little bit, and um, we're hoping to get some of their writers or you know game developers and and stuff like that on the on the show at some point so wonderful um i think that'd be really good i'm a huge fan i think we talked about how we may have an open game night with no game that we have some players with no game and a place to game in my place maybe we can make something work i think that would be amazing so, but yeah, that was my geek week. I'm just kind of doing a lot of stuff for the website, tabletopandbeyond.com. If you haven't visited it, uh, we got a bunch of stuff co- going up uh, all the time. So, uh, and of course, uh, if you are listening, if you need a place to listen to the podcast, which is kind of weird because you're probably already listening to the podcast right now, but if you need another place to listen to it, you can always get that off of our front page as well. So, yeah. Well, Good sometimes, times. you know, that you've got your phone or you're at work and you're on a, you know, PC or a laptop with your headphones. And sometimes it's easier to go to a web page than it is to yep. hook up your phone while you're working. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this much. Um, I am often at my client's computer system mm-hmm. and I cannot download Spotify Ooh, yeah. onto that system because they don't let me download outside software, which, I mean, makes sense, right? Yeah. It's their computer, yeah. their rules. Um, but I can't download Spotify, and you can't listen to Spotify unless you have it downloaded. Um, you know, they don't have a web browser that they that they have. So uh, listening to it from my web browser uh, is one of the better options. Nice. I, it, yeah. it has been for me, too. I've, I've often worked in limited environments. Yeah, very good. So, all right, Dan, what kind of geek news we got this week? All righty. Come on. Welcome to Tabletop and Beyond News. I missed this, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) I did, too. I don't know why. It's probably one of the most narcissistic things I do. All right, uh, Cubicle <laughs> 7. Cubicle 7, another great RPG um, and board game producer, announced a new iteration of their Doctor Who role-playing game line, oh. Doctors and Daleks Player's Guide using the 5e rule system. So, Wow, um, okay. This is for some folks who are into the Whovian universe, and maybe they know the 5e system real well, and they want to jump right in. Um, look for that from Cubicle Seven. They will continue. Cubicle Seven will continue to produce their other um, Doctor Who content using a uh, custom rule system for Doctor Who, mm-hmm. but they've also been porting over to Five E, indicating yet another trend of IPs um, being skinned for the Five uh, E rules engine. 
And I think you said that, um, it's our custom roll um, system, right? Isn't mm -hmm. that the, the D100 system that they have with like uh, some of their other stuff? That rings a bell. I don't want to talk out of school. I'm, I would have to double check before I gave you a okay. yes or no. I've not played this game, um, but I know people who have, and they say it's great. So um, I'm not, I, I, I'm too behind on Doctor Who to, to really get into it. <laughs> Yeah. So, but I, I'm who friendly. I'm who compatible. <laughs> there you go. You're a Whovian. I'm, no, I'm not a Whovian. I'm okay. I, I'm who, I'm who adjacent. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. Right. Our Fair next enough. item of news. ICO partners announced that 2021 was yet again, a year of net growth for tabletop games on Kickstarter both in raw numbers of projects funded, but also in the total amount of money raised by the projects. So the year-in-year -year growth um, uh, for 2020 was 33%. Uh, it had grown from the year before, and then it went grow in 2021. It grew by 13%, which was less. And now in 2022, 20, uh, we're up to about um, 17%. So things are growing, um, and that's good. Um, we're doing better than 21, but we're still not um, where we were in 2020. So I, I've got two thoughts about this. Yep. Um, one, 2020 was a very weird year where we had no idea if we are going to be staying in stores forever, right? So I wonder if people were like, well, might as well buy a board game since I'm just sitting here, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and even though, like, those board games may not be fulfilled until 2021 or whatever, like, that was a pretty good year for, I think, online shopping, 2020 was. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so there, there's that thought right there of why 2020 was the biggest one. Um, but it makes me wonder, too, um, what is the supply chain's impact on, on funding numbers here? You know, um, I know we're having year-over-year -year growth. I don't I know we're seeing, you know, the raw number of projects also go up. So, you know, just there's there's more on there. But like, you know, a game that was maybe $100 in 2020 is it now like 125 in 2022, 150 mm. because I think, you know, like the shipping and printing stuff like it has gone crazy expensive. Yeah. Like in the last in the last 4 years, like crazy expensive. So, and, and this was happening before um, 2020, by the way. I remember when um, Rob Schwab yeah. was talking about his Kickstarter that came out in 2019. Um, when, was that when we went to a catacomb? Was 2019? Yep, I think that's yeah. right. Yeah. So um, he was talking about his Kickstarter, and he talked about how like the cost of printing and shipping went up so crazy high that he's like, I'm I I'm not gonna do as well as I thought I was on this on this project, you know, just cause like from the time he put it in there to the time, like actual shipping came up, like it was, um, it was much more expensive than he thought. So yeah, I wonder if they're building those costs in a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I definitely would say that the dip between the years, the one year and the other year had to have been the supply line tie up in, in China. There's just no two ways around it. Right. Um, Kickstarter, the econ the economic, the economies of scale don't work for uh, indie game publishers without Chinese pub publishing houses. So when the boats slow down and people don't want to put money on Kickstarters like they did because they don't want to wait as many years to get their product, it's right. gonna it's gonna have a cooling effect. Now, let's let's be honest for the uh, for this period of time that they assessed. 
over half of all funded projects were under ten thousand dollars and um oh interesting and projects funding for less than five hundred thousand dollars accounted for over one hundred million dollars of the total funding wow at the same time the big projects that funded over five hundred thousand dollars they hit a whole time all-time high with 101 projects so there were wow. 101 game projects that um that raised over half a million dollars each one thing i i noticed um was that some of these bigger ones like mythic games and um uh uh and stuff like that right yeah. uh they they expanded a lot of their ips during this time right like because like cool means or not like zombicides like their big thing and of course they were putting out zombicide stuff but then they like hit into the marvel stuff they started hitting into other big stuff you know so yeah like they um their ip started blowing up to where you know i think they had a lot more recognizable names like yeah. uh the song of ice and fire right came out in 2019 i think for them well you, you can't you know. buy a license with nothing Right. So if you have cash in the bank and you're like, well, I could go buy a fishing license, a license to hunt, and go hunt me a, a deer, and then I'll have a deer. But I can't if I can't pay for the the deer hunting license, I can't get the deer. Right. So that's that's what a lot of that is. Um, and Marvel seems to be like the sluttiest IP. You, I mean, <laughs> anybody can go make a Marvel game. Anybody can you know, go make a Marvel thing. You know, Welcome to, to the multiverse, right? <laughs> all you have to do is lift your pant leg above your ankle and go, I want to make a Marvel board game. And go, we'll sell you a license. Right. So, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm throwing shade at all the biz- all the bizarre levels There's of Marvel so stuff out There's there. There's so many. So, anyway, yeah. interesting stuff. Uh, Kickstarter. Yeah, it's very interesting. Board gaming in Kickstarter is alive and well. It's still huge money. And it's still, like, I think we had said at one point in time, or they, we had looked at the numbers, and board games accounted for over half of all the money that goes through Kickstarter is on board games. So, so one thing that I don't think we've talked about on here, um, I noticed, like, maybe about a month ago maybe a month and a half ago, um, there was kind of a big dust-up on Twitter over Kickstarter because they were moving to um, the blockchain. Yeah, that's um, and so Yeah, and so a lot of people are like, oh, we hate it for the environment and all this stuff, you know. Um, and uh, so I was starting to see a bunch of games being listed on GameFound, um, which is like a rival to kickstarter yeah yeah so they're um, they're they're, i I don't know how big they are but you know like they're there yes certainly um game found and they seem to cater towards yeah they seem to cater towards board games specifically i mean like they've got other games but like board games is like their jam and ravensburger just gave a whole bunch of money to uh game found so interesting um but I don't know. I look at all this stuff and I think a, a rising tide lifts all boats, you know? Sure. Yeah. If, if there's enough money for, you know, Kickstarter to be rolling around in Scrooge McDuck money, there's, there's room for two or three other competitors to come in and create some efficiencies through competition. Yeah. That's definitely. not that big of a deal. Yeah. Right. That doesn't keep me up at night. Maybe it, other people does, not me. Yeah. Um. Next news item is uh 
PC Gamer reports that Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance 2 is coming to PC this year. Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance 2 came out on ye olde PlayStation 2 and original Xbox back in 2004. Well, I'm so glad it's I'm glad it's coming out 18 years later on the they're, PC. No, they're, yeah, they're reskinning it, right? This is this yeah. is one of those. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you take a classic, it's it's like remixing a classic track, right? It's yeah. Like, okay, well, this was originally mixed in mono, and then in the 80s they remixed it in stereo, and now they're taking Beatles music and remixing it in Dolby Atmos, and and it's just another way to enjoy that content. Um, sometimes the games are worth remixing, right? If the, if the story's good and the acting's good and the, you know, the gameplay is fun. Heck, why not? No, the worst thing is trying to play a game you know is good and looking at the graphics and having that yeah. take away from the experience. Yeah. Uh, funny story about this game in particular. I had a good friend um, that I I uh, knew in Utah when I was going to school there, and he lived like kitty corner from me, right? And uh, I found out that he likes playing video games, and mm-hmm. I had a PlayStation Two, and I think he had a PlayStation Two, and so I got this game, and we would play. This was like a two-player co-op, like you know Diablo style game um that we would play and we would play this thing and we'd play for hours and hours and hours and just let our wives just kind of yammer on about whatever they were talking about in the kitchen (laughs) and we would just play and play and play and we loved playing it we had a good time and we'd always get to like near the end and then um we were like okay all right we gotta stop it's too late let's pick it up next weekend or whatever well in between them i'd always start a new game and somehow overwrite our game (laughs) Like, this happened, like, three times, Dan. Three times. To the point where he's like, I'm not playing this game with you anymore. You like, <laughs> So we you never finished jerk. it. We never finished the game. Uh, yeah. I know. Yeah, the first time, it's a fair mistake. The third time, we're like, dude, we're doing something else. Yeah. That's yeah. Fine. So, well, uh, you know, I didn't, well, we I didn't had a good to, time with it. I didn't it mean to trigger game. a dark memory. Yeah, it was, you know, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> you know, I think if I called him up today, he'd probably still say I'm not, I'm not, I'm still not playing that with you. But it's going to come out for PC and you guys can play it again. It'll be so yeah, great. Exactly. And the graphics, and the <laughs> graphics will be modern, the modern graphics. All right. Board Game Geek reports that after releasing a revamped version of Dune in 2019, that was the old, oldie uh, 1980s version of Dune, they re-released in 2019. And the scaled-down Dune, a game of conquest and diplomacy in 2021, publisher Gale Force 9 plans to release its third Dune title in June of 2022 with Arrakis, Dawn of the Fremen. Ooh, that sounds promising. Well, it's a different kind of Dune game. So Arrakis, Dawn of the Fremen is set more than 100 generations before the Atreides came to Arrakis. And the game focuses on the hard choices Fremen leaders made when bargaining, cooperating, and competing in the harsh Arrakis environment to gain and protect scarce resources and create the communal cave dwellings they call sieges. So everybody is a Fremen, and you have a tribe, and you're all scraping it out, trying to uh, keep keep your tribe alive and, uh, and, and coexist with the worm with shy halud. So yeah, let the spice flow. Right. Um, you know, I, part of me is like, 
the Dune, the Dune that Dennis, that you know, Denny Villeneuve did um, mm-hmm. was absolutely amazing, and I think that we're seeing like the the fallout's the wrong word, right? The 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 consequences, the beneficial consequences of this, which is like right. Like a lot of these games could be skinned as something else, but now they're going to get the Dune skin on it. Maybe, maybe you know? Halo effect. Yeah, <laughs> it's like oh, exactly. well, we don't. Do we need another Dune game? Well, we have a game engine and it's fun. And if we just dropped it on Arrakis, a thousand years yeah. before the movie, then we've got a game. Because you could make this about cavemen in Africa or something like this, right? Mm. Or like, you know, some sort of you know Celtic feudal system, you know. Like, I mean, it could be all the yeah. all the same all the same things with the skin, but you know, drop the Dune IP on it, and you know, yeah. I mean, we've talked about IPs and stuff like that before, yeah. but it's interesting to see like that there are all of these games that are either being either getting new additions for, right, or um kind of being skinned in in dune this so. one is based on the game borderlands right okay which is about barbarians barbarian leaders of the far future deal in diplomacy treachery and de- development so it's kind of like post post-apocalyptic yeah barbarians but anyway if it's a good game it's a good game the thing that is interesting to me is because i read the super prequels the ones like a thousand years before the main events of the movie like the butlerian jihad where they actually show the founding of the fremen it's like i would be playing the game with that pair of eyes i'd be like so do are we connecting this back up to that era of dune because there's three you know there's three 400 page novels covering that period Right. So, um, and so that's. I would wonder if Gale Force Nine cared about that. That would be my like angle on it. I'd be like, so did you? Do you really care about the lore, or are you just? Is this just an art project? <laughs> or they're just like, okay, well, we know that we can't put it in the modern thing because you know the Atreides showed up. So how about if we go spin the dial three hundred <laughs> years in the past? <laughs> You know, like <laughs> well, and if you look at what Gale, if you um, if you look on, I'm on Board Game Geek, and I can see the the uh, front cover of it. It does have the Dune logo from the last film, and it has the legendary film logo. So there, this is definitely a film tie-in, yeah, game. So right. they're tying it to the film, maybe not so much to the Brian Herbert. Kevin J. Anderson novels, which I think were very good and underrated in my totally underrated, totally underrated. Yeah. So, okay, great. So that was the news and I'm still here. (laughs) Yes, you are. Thank you very much for the news, Dan. Uh, It's always interesting to talk about some of the stuff that's happening in the world of geekdom and gaming. Uh, But let's talk about our main topic today. So, our topic is why competitive war games need new additions. Uh, it's no stranger to the friends of the show that we play Warhammer, we play Warcry, we play X-Wing, we play, you know, all sorts of different war games. Armada. Armada, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we've got a lot of them. And, you know, war games are uh, an interesting, they're an interesting genre in the sense that they are living games, Right, and I think that that's what sets them apart from a lot of other games. Um, that's why I don't know if I would totally classify a game like Axis and Allies yeah. as 
um, a war game. I think it's a strategic. It's a strategic game. Strategic I don't. Strategic board game. There's, yeah, there's but I wouldn't. Where is it all in the box plus expansions in the box, and you have everything you need? That feels right. like a board game. If it's yep. a war game, you're putting together rules plus models plus, in many cases, crafting of your own, hobbying of your own, yep. and prepping your your pieces for a game where it's not a game where you bring in other players. It's a game where you and your pieces go, you know, you go find somebody else who's done the same thing, which is exactly. different from and a And you've board got game. different scenarios and like every game could be very different, right? In fact, usually every game is very different because you don't, um, you're not set by pre-configured um, starting positions. You're not set by, um, you know, pre-configured rules necessarily. Um, there's a lot of flexibility in there. And so, I think that that poses the challenge, which is, you know, because it is a living game, because war games are living, um, when do they die and when do they need resurrection? And, and you know, why, <laughs> you know? Do we, why, why are there so many new editions always coming out? And yeah. as gamers, you can just predict that the Internet will be mad when you come out with a new edition of anything. Yes. And then you'll find a percentage of people who are like, oh, thank goodness, I'm so glad they updated this. Now the game is really going to be great. It, you, you, can, you can just write the posts now and save them for two years when the newer edition comes out. Copy-paste it. It'll mean exactly the same thing. And it got me thinking because X-Wing has gone through a major shift, and we don't need to talk about all the ways it's shifted, but the core principle that applies to lots of games, which is, why do we keep fine-tuning games? And I was like, and it brought me to chess. And I'm like, okay, well, chess uh -huh. is a done, it's a finished game, but it didn't start out to be finished. Right. That game has been worked on for 1,300 years, right? And the version that we play is only about two or 300 years old. But even then, 300 years ago, they were moving, swapping pieces out. Like the queen, before the queen was the queen, the, it was the vizier, and it, yeah. it was less powerful. And then they came out with the queen because that reflected modern courtly stuff. You had a king and a queen, and the queen had political power, you know, three or four hundred years ago. Yep, yep. And that was a reflection of the time. And the version of chess we play now is called Mad Queen Chess, because <laughs> because the, the the that version of the rules gave the queen all these superpowers. Yeah. And in other versions of the game, the king could like jump over more people and do more attacks and stuff like that. And we look at chess as like a totally solidly baked game. And it is. Chess is not fundamentally going to change unless you want to experiment with Star Trek 3D chess or anything like that. You can modify it, but the default setting has just been sorted out. Yeah. But it happened because human beings kept tweaking with it, right? And we have a long history of people tweaking war games. The Germans were doing war games in the 1780s to the early 1800s. That was like yeah. the first kind of legit war game that wasn't chess. Yeah, the and, Kriegspiel. Yes, and the purpose of that was to train military officers, was to get them yep. thinking strategically. And so the war game was, it was certainly not a board game like chess where you had two sets of equal pieces. It was, okay, in this scenario, I have this much infantry and this much cavalry and this much artillery, and my opponent would have their own specific to their own thing, which is, it's asymmetric, which is kind of like what we have in war games, we have maybe point values or or war scrolls that create some level of game balance, but it's still asymmetric. Yeah. Um, H.G. Wells 
was a huge fan. He published Little Wars in 1913, so he published his own toy soldiers game, you know, with uh, lead toy soldiers that was played out in the backyard, and they would uh, light matches on fire and fire them on spring-loaded things and try to hit other <laughs> lead pieces, nice. which I think is awesome. Um, the modern war games that are, the modern war games that we play now kind of have their basis in the 1950s when um, Charles S. Roberts kind of published the first war game. It was all kind of in one box. The other war games you still uh, you put your own crap together, but it kind of it would be familiar to us as as a modern war game. And then this really took off. And that guy, Charles uh, Charles S. Roberts, he founded Avalon Hill. And nice. by the early 1970s, historical war games just like took off. Yep. Um, and if it wasn't for a decade of historical war games, dozens and dozens of, they were more like board games than they were our modern war games. You wouldn't really get Warhammer in 1983 and everything that right. spawned off of Warhammer. And so I think we just keep fine tuning and fine tuning and fine tuning because Warhammer was offering something that those historical war games wasn't. There's a fantasy mm-hmm. element. There's the hobbying element in, in in its own way. And it was an open game, right? It's an, oh, you go yep. buy your army and bring your army. Uh, and all of us that play war games now all kind of owe a tip of the hat to Warhammer in 1983. So, but we're still coming out with new Warhammer rules still come all the other games that have come since have all just are constantly being tweaked and it can be maddening as a, as a, as a player, as a collector, um, as a strategist that the rules of the game are always moving underneath the, the, your feet. So what kind of things get swapped out from one edition to another? What are some things that come to mind? So, um, it's interesting uh, let's let's talk about Warhammer Fantasy. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So Warhammer Fantasy um, had been around since the nineties, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even late eighties. I think um, I think forty k came out before Fantasy did, um, but it it was it, it so it, it had been around a long time. We got to in twenty sixteen. Oh my gosh, I'm going to mess up my dates, and somebody's going to kill me. It was either twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen. I think twenty sixteen. Um, Warhammer Fantasy Edition came to an end. It was in its eighth edition there, mm-hmm. right? So they had gone through eight iterations of it, and they replaced it with Age of Sigmar. Right. Okay, and which was the fantasy models. Um, some of them were new lines of models. Some of them were new things, right? Like they started coming out with uh, more plastic minis instead of the pewter mm-hmm. um, ones that were out there. Yep. Uh, the so plastic sprues changing. versus yeah, exactly. metal casts. Yep. So, um, so that was a big change. But if you talk to <laughs> there's some people there's some people who are like I'm never gonna play Age of Sigmar. I'm I'm only gonna work in Warhammer Fantasy forever and ever and ever. And those are the curmudgeons that we are like, okay, do get with the times, right? Um, but it was kind of a big thing because Age of Sigmar sort of botched its rollout when it first came out yeah. and yeah. didn't really have a competitive aspect to it, um, which I think turned a lot of people off because there was like a big competitive community in in um, fantasy. But anyway, the the point was is that uh, you talk to Age of Sigmar people, um, even the ones that were heavily invested in fantasy, and they say, to a person, they say, Warhammer 8th Edition was bloat. 
it was so bloated. Yeah. Um, that like you had to have like eight books to like right. run your your thing, right? Like you had the core rules book, you had your army book, you had uh, like three or four supplements, you had like you know the FAQs that had come out that you needed to carry around with you, you had extra data sheets that would like come out. You know, I mean, it was just like over and over and over and over again, and like and they're just like it was just so much that it was like impossible to to um keep up with so we you call know? it cruft so, right there's just too much yeah. old dead code that in, in yeah programming. like in and and i mean that happens you, you saw it happen uh, warhammer is in its ninth edition right now warhammer 40k and you saw it happen at the end of eighth edition where you know like um this this happens pretty often right like you'll get the new edition that comes out and it's pretty well balanced, right? They've thought yeah. through a lot of different things. It's pretty well balanced. And then a new army will get new updates because, you know, you got to keep things fresh. And we can talk about, you know, regular updates and things like that. But a new army gets new updates. And all of a sudden, they're like the bid bad on the street now because, like, they are optimized for that edition. Right. Right. They, they, their rules have been written for that edition with that edition in mind. And so now, like, they are fully optimized. And compare that to the army whose last rules update were at the beginning of the previous edition, where they are not optimized at all. Yeah. There's a huge balance problem that happens right there. But, but then, you know, and we can talk about balance in a second. But yeah. what happens is you get a new, you know, new, ar new army rules for that. And then the next army gets rules that help kind of counter the previous army's right. rules. They course right? correct. Course correct to, so that they have like a foil for like how awesome that previous army was. And then you get, you know, you get that over and over and over and over again. And so like Warhammer 40K has got, I don't know, something like, you know, 20 different factions. I don't know. I'm, I'm maybe making that up. Mm -hmm. Between the Space Marine, different Space sure. Marine factions, that's probably about right. But, um, you know, you got, like, 20 different factions, and so you're getting 20 different new rules that are coming out. And by the end of the edition, like, you're just like, holy cow, like, how does this, how does all of this extra rules that have come out, come out, come out, come out, come out, um, really help the game so and does every game yeah. need to just be simplified and in some cases that's not the case in some cases they'll come out with a new edition and they'll take something that was a quick easy rule and then they'll yeah. blow it out and expand it that's true like for yeah. instance in x-wing turn order was decided at the very beginning of the game you know who's going to go first if you tied you basically tossed a coin other than that it was a person who bid the lowest points now every round it could be a different player going first. You have to roll every round, which is exciting, yeah. creates the uncertainty. It's added extra steps to the game, but it's actually enhanced the game by right. adding new design space in there, right? So sometimes yep. you see that happen where they go, um, you know, maybe the game becomes more complex, but it gives the developers more room to do more interesting stuff down the road. Um, yeah, I, that's I, a good I think point. They... Warhammer is unique because they keep coming out with faction-specific rulebooks. Right. And a lot of games that I'm familiar with don't really do that. They'll come out with pieces for the faction, right. and, and but they will, whatever new rule that they've given to one faction, they'll usually give to two or three other out of seven. Right. Right. And so it's not like it's only a, a thing owned by one faction. Very well, it's because like you're if you're flying and you've got like ion cannons. Well, ion cannons will do something in a game, 
whether you're a separatist or whether you're right. a you know uh, a rebel yes. unit or whatever. Ion cannons are ion cannons. It is what it period. is. You slap you know? it on. Yeah, yeah. And and so another thing is that I think you know we've talked about it before. There were th- there are rules which are kind of like quick cleanup rules or corner case rules, and they don't get fixed, and then they become major strategic plays. So in X-Wing, the idea of bumping, you're doing three-dimension for two-dimension, or you're doing two-dimension for three-dimension, right? You play on two-dimensional, a a flat plane, but you have to imagine it's three-dimensional. Well, what happens when one plane flies over another one? You have to have a way of adjudicating. They don't hit each other, but you have to know which one drops where. Well, it's gonna he's going to slow down and just be right behind the other guy adjacent, right? Yeah. Well, that became a major strategy for running. So many things came out of that compromise of going from 3D to 2D that it became, now I can fortress my guys in the corner in the beginning of the game and, and run out the clock. You know, or I can now fly a big swarm of TIE fighters and I can play the way they bump against each other and keep them in formation. So in the version of 2.5, they had to like come up with new bumping rules because that Uh that was like, okay, well, if you, you know, we don't want you to bump your own guys anymore. That would be bad. So you're going to start taking damage. And if you bump an opponent, that's a little less, that matters a little less. So now there's two rules instead of one, which makes it harder to judge, right? But nonetheless, nonetheless, they basically said, look, this was a compromise in the very first edition, but now we have to do something different with it because the game needs to grow and there's things that have been calcified and crafted up. And if you take away that one thing, now suddenly it blows open. A lot of other things blow open. Yeah. For instance, like the points in, I'm going to talk about X-Wing again because it just went through a major change. In the old days, you had one bucket of points. I don't know how you guys do war scrolls. I think you guys go find a war scroll. That's your army. You make that army, right? Uh, do you have a little bit of customization? Uh, got a of you, you've got a bucket of points, right? You got a bucket. Yeah, of points. you get a bucket of points, and each unit um, is a point value. So, like right. a unit of five might, you know, of something might be worth two hundred points, but a unit of ten of something might also be worth two hundred points. But obviously, that ten of something is probably smaller and weaker. Yes than the unit of five, right? And so you got to make your strategic decisions there, and um, but they're all worth a certain amount of points, so you got to add up to 2,000. Right, and that's the pregame thing, right? Yep. So in yep. X-Wing, your points, they started with 100, then they bumped it with two, to 200. But essentially what you had to do is your, your the chassis you're flying, the pilot you put in that chassis, and any upgrades, an R2 unit, a, a proton torpedo, all that stuff had different point values. And mm-hmm. so, and it was all in the same bucket. So you were competing against, do I take a sixth ship, right? Or do I break yeah. that sh- sixth ship up and then put cooler things on the five ships I have? So and I've got five better ships, right? right? It was always this tug and pull and tug. And at the end of the day, having a piece on the table was very very valuable in many for many players not the elite players the elite players could go out with two two ships and do what they need to do um, <laughs> but but for most folks sometimes but now there's two different point buckets there's the buckets oh, you, you got 20 points to for your chassis and then every chassis and pilot comes with an their own individually determined bucket of loadout points so oh, interesting. Luke can always fly with R2-D2 and a proton torpedo now. In the way the game was designed, you would never want to do that. It was just too big right. of a waste. You would, it just right. wouldn't be worth it. 
Now it's totally worth it if you want to take an expensive piece like Luke. He now comes with all these, he comes with uh, all this, all this headroom that you never had before. At the same time, mm-hmm. you could take a cruddy pilot that's just a schlub, a guy that blows up in the background. You can't take that schlub and load him down with, you know, you can't take a, a TIE bomber and load him down with, you know, three different bombs and two different torpedoes and all this stuff, right? You cannot, and, and so that used to be a strategy, right? You take a cheap mm-hmm. ship, you pilot on all this, you pile on all this good gear. Well, this has fundamentally changed how everybody's looking at the game. Now the game's totally yeah. different because you design, everything is designed differently, right? right. You have yeah. to say, all of my precognitions, my, my pre, that's the wrong word, but you know, my, my, all my assumptions about what I need to do to make a good squad are now thrown right out the window because we moved to 2.5. Yeah, because the developer said the game needs to evolve, and this is one way we're going to evolve it. And some people, it's making their head explode, and other people are like, "Oh my gosh, this is the best thing I've ever seen." Right. So it's interesting you talk about that because I think I think what you're hitting on really is the idea of um, highlighting like seldom used abilities or rules, right? Like. You kind of sometimes game developers want the game to be able to do something, right? And you know, given the given the rules as they exist, not a lot of players are doing that thing because it just doesn't make sense in a competitive, yeah. you know, in a competitive environment. Um, this happened with Age of Sigmar when they came out with their third edition, which they're in right now. Um, nobody was using monsters before. Um, yeah. because it was they they're they're usually costed a little too high they didn't have much to do on a game like maybe too okay. easy to take down but yeah you know i mean like they're easy to see they're kind of big they're kind of derpy sometimes you know like their their war scrolls weren't weren't super powerful um but in the third edition they decided warhammer decided to come out with um seasons and right now we're in the first season of AOS 3.0, which is the season of Gur. And uh, if you know anything about the realms of in the Age of Sigmar, uh, Gur is the land of monsters. Okay, so what they did is they gave some extra rules for monsters in this. So now they can do some extra damage in certain phases. Now they earn you extra victory points if you have them do certain things in the game. Um, you've got, you know, round by round tactics that you can do. And if you ever do them with a monster, you get a bonus point for that, you know? And so now you can't find a competitive list that doesn't have at least two monsters on it. Right. Because now, you know, because now you need it, you know, and they figured out a way using essentially scenarios. Yep. Yep. And that's where X-Wing has gone too. It used to be just, you just kill each other. And now right. it's moved to scenarios. Our motto was always scenarios from day one. Right, right. But it was the same thing. It's like you may think that you cannot just devise the best list possible to kill somebody. That is a strategy. It can work. But if you fail at that one strategy, you don't have any others to, to do. Host, your, to yeah. do your, yep. So it sounds like your monsters were, were something else where having having the monster gave you an advantage that it made it doesn't make sense to leave one behind, right? Yeah, so it, it completely changed the focus on some of the rules. You know what I mean? Where like 
they were they were not being taken and um i mean i think this goes also to uh, we're going to talk about commerce in a little bit yeah. right now everybody's out there buying these expensive well this is this is our units. segue this is our segue you know okay all right great so so you know like these monsters in in asia sigmar they're like generally like somewhere between 60 and 170 dollars yeah. yeah for this yeah. one model you know and and you know they're the big ones. They're the they're the tough guys that are out there, and generally they're your like centerpiece models, right? Like you have these uh, armies on a display board, you're gonna put that monster right in the middle because yeah. it's an eye catcher, right? You know, um, and so you know there's a lot of people that have said like, oh, James, you know, Games Workshop is doing this just so they can you know sell their models and make more money. And I'm well, yeah, I mean they're a company that makes profit so let's assume that they're going to continue to make profit you know <laughs> but um but you know the fact is is that nobody was playing with them before and the fact that everybody has now is kind of interesting right and maybe those products weren't moving and so from right. a commerce standpoint they're like we're a business first not a charity first it's kind of the art versus commerce when i say art it's like fun we're doing we do this for fun we do this for the yep. pure enjoyment the art of it while they're doing it because they have to pay their mortgages, right? And that's, yeah. they're going to make choices that depend on how many people they can hire or fire in a given quarter. So it's like, hey guys, how come we keep stocking the shelves with all these monsters and people buy them, paint them, and put them on their shelf and just look at them? Um, which is fine too, but it's not that you're not going to move as many units as if it was like, oh, hey, now you should have one. You know, don't leave home without your two monsters. Um, yeah. So I think commerce is a thing, and that goes to pack backward compatibility. And I've noticed this trend in these games where, and you keyed on this idea earlier, which is when the game first comes out, when the new edition comes out, all your models are still good, or most of your models are still good, right? Yeah. You know, 80% of the models. And that's a situation that we have in X-Wing right now. They, they, I think about uh, 65% of the models from second edition are good in 2.5. This is the first time they've abandoned models we've never done yeah. we've never done that before they're oh like, really they're like yeah they've okay. just never done it they just never go every model was always playable up until just now but it's like okay so um if if you're gonna have every model in the next version it's got to be backwards compatible and all those have to be balanced and then over time there becomes power creep right where they want to yep. sell you the next thing, and the next thing, oh, that next thing could give me an edge, and yeah. so you're like, well, I got to buy because that. it's more optimized, right? It's more optimized, and, yeah, and it's usually more optimized for the current meta, right? So even like even if you're in the middle of a new edition, so let's say you know in in two years from now, I'm still working in Age of Sigmar 3.0. If a new army comes out, let's say a new band of orcs comes out. All of a sudden, that's going to be optimized for that meta. Not the even though it's yeah. you know still 3.0, the beginning of 3.0 is a different game usually than the middle of 3.0. And the the difference you know? is is the playtesting is done in the hundreds, and the uh, the competitives are in the tens of thousands of games. Yes, exactly. Right, and there's a very different. You know, no game survives encountering with the players, right? It's mm -hmm. like no plan encounters. No 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 plan survives battle with the enemy. That, that, that's what's happening yeah. here. Yeah. Which is, and and now you have game designers who think they know how the third edition is going to go, 
Um, but halfway through it, they're like, okay, well, we need to make some, we need to correct some things in the current game and we need to sell some stuff and we need to get people excited to buy the new thing. That's the other piece of this puzzle. War games different than board games. Board games, they kind of want you to get expansions. And expansions yeah. kind of feel good and they're kind of exciting. But it's not the same thing as a word game where you're like, if right. I bought this, maybe I'll start winning more. Maybe I'll start making cuts. And maybe my rankings will go up. That's a totally right. different... And, yeah. and and the cost difference between a board game expansion and, and chasing the meta on like a games workshop, <laughs> we're talking about a factor of times 10, you know, or more. Yeah. Uh, between how much cash you're going to lay out to, to chase the meta. Right. Um, and that's, that's what comes into... So is player investment bad, right? And, and we say, is that bad? Is it bad that everybody wants to buy the latest and greatest? Well, if no one ever wanted to buy the latest and greatest and everybody's playing with their first edition crap and all the new stuff just collects dust on the shelves and the game, the, the you know, friendly local game stores can't, can't move product, well, that's no good either, right? Right. That's not healthy right. for, the, for the entire hobby. Well, and I'm convinced too, by the way, that most war gamers are also collectors at heart. Yeah, that's like, true. We're gonna we're, know, we're, we want so, it in case we need it. <laughs> and you know the the thing is, is like, I I am like a collector of the war bands for Warcry, right? Yeah. I want them all. I want them yeah, all. Just get them. Um, <laughs> Don't need them. Even but if I, I want never them. play them, I, them, I want them, right? Yeah. Um, and and even for Age of Sigmar, like I've told myself, I want to have at least one nice complete army for each Grand Alliance, which there's order, death, chaos, and uh, destruction, right? Okay. And I've got a death army in my Night Hunt Ghost, and I've got a destruction army in my in my orcs. So I'm always kind of on the lookout for those other two. Like, what do I really want to play of those other two? And like, what do I want to get invested in? Um, and so, again, you know, collectors at heart. So, like, the new stuff that comes out always, I guarantee you, it tickles the community's fancy every time something new comes out. Because it's shiny, it's new, it's probably got some really good rules in it, right? And, like you said, I mean, you're, if you're a meta chaser, like, it's got the new rules that could give you an advantage, right? So, um, I, think, I think that that is... It's important because that is what makes a living game, you yeah. know, um, the, the idea that there's new stuff coming out that can change the competitive environment. That that's what makes it living. Um, you know, a board game with expansions. You, could you argue that that's a living game? Sure, but really, they've got their arc of expansions probably already developed and already sent to China for print. <laughs> right. Because if they you know, didn't, people like, will lose interest. <laughs> right. And then they're and then but you know once once those expansions come out, like they're pretty much done and they've moved on and they're yeah. working on the next game. You know, um, but that's not the case with. You know these war games. Like you've got to keep it. You got to keep them fresh. You got to keep them moving, or else they will die on the vine. So, um, I think I think that player health, you know, versus the game with new products. I think that it is a balance. But I, there's always buyers out there. It seems like for it. You know, and you know, I gotta admit, I'm, I'm a sucker for this stuff. I really am. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, you find the one thing you want to buy, and it doesn't matter what they come out with you know you want you it's the completionist thing you know you yep. want to complete you want to complete you want to complete and it, it's hard to get away from that it's it's really really tough so um 
uh, and you find yourself buying stuff that you never play. That's the other problem with gaming like this (laughs) is how much stuff are you going to buy that you never actually use? And, um, you're the, the completionist collector or are you the person who is spending money to, for entertainment, like going to the movies or going out to dinner or something like that. Right. Which is it? Right. It's usually somewhere in the middle. And if you can do both, you're winning, but you know, uh, at some point in time, there's just throwing money away on, on plastic. And, and that, that feels wrong too. At the, yeah. the at one side of the extreme, because most people are somewhere in, in the bell curve, right? We all know there's extreme cases on both sides, but most people are in the bell curve. Like I know somebody who took up magic, yeah. the gathering, and he only got used cards from people. Mm. Like he wouldn't pay, he didn't spend yeah. a nickel on it. He's like, Oh, well I play white decks and I kept asking everybody for their, for their trash cards for, for white. Now he's not a competitive player, but that's how he plays the game. Right. That, that would be the yeah. opposite side of the, the spectrum of I'm just going to throw money to make sure I have every card from every set all the time. You never know. You never know. So um, the commerce the commerce has to be there, and we cannot rob the businessmen from a, from an honorable business. And, yeah, and, 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 is, com- and yeah, is, com- is coming out with a new edition before an old edition has seen its full day. Is that dishonorable? No, I don't think so. Uh, well, mm, um, I think it depends on why it's coming out, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. let's talk about Age of Sigmar 2.0, right? Um, you you could make the argument that um, it was not 100% ready for a new edition because not every army had gotten an update in Age of Sigmar 2.0. Okay. Right, some of the some of the rules were still holdouts from the first edition. Oh, okay, you know what okay, I mean. Okay, and okay. maybe they had gotten like a little bit of a refresh in uh, a White Dwarf, which is Games Workshop's uh, monthly publication. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and you can like buy the White Dwarf, and sometimes there's like little rules updates in there. And so, um, but you know, there was a couple of armies that hadn't been updated since 1.0, right? And so you could say, okay, well, why, you know, we're not going to get a new edition until this comes out. Really, I think I think if you can examine the necessity of it, right? And I'm using Age of Sigmar 2.0 as an example. They had come out in 2019 with a bunch of rules that were that we termed the activation wars. Mm-hmm. And so, what happens when you play Age of Sigmar is that uh, when you get into combat, mm-hmm. right? Like hand the uh, melee combat. It is, you go, you pick a unit, I pick a unit. You pick a unit, I pick a unit. Yep. You pick a unit, I pick a unit. Right? Back and forth. Yep. We had this with well, Armada. They, yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So yep. they started coming out with some rules for certain units that said, once you enter the, at the beginning of the combat phase, this unit can fight first. Right. They can right? They, they can mess with the standard order of operations. Exactly. And so um, and so all of a sudden, each phase had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And now each of those parts had a beginning and a beginning beginning. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's like, well, if I have a unit that can fight first and you have a unit that can fight first, well, which one can fight first, right? And so it was like you were trying to find those units that could fight first because, for example... If I was taking a unit of five horsemen into a unit of ten footmen, for example, um, I want to hit those footmen as hard as I can 
so that only two of them are swinging back at me when it's their turn. Yeah. yeah. Right? So there's there's definite advantage into going first because, like, a good offense is a good defense mm-hmm. kind of type, mm-hmm. you know, type of thing. And so you started having these activation wars that were just getting silly. Yeah. And, like, so they had these, like, okay, well, these people can strike first. These people can strike first first. You know what I mean? Well, and then and, 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 they had... And yeah. the whole idea that one guy would fight than another than another is just a contrivance of the fact that we can't run simultaneous units on a board game. Right, exactly. And they're just playing so, with the contrive. Yeah. Play the fixes. Everybody takes a turn, and then they turn the fix into a strategy. And yep. we've seen that and, a lot of places in, in a game. Yeah, game and then and then they started messing with like, oh well, this one has an ability where you can't go until very last. You know, so. So, yeah. like, the rules started getting super complicated with that, right? Yeah. And, and this is where some of the bloat came in. This is where some of the rules, like, needed to be simplified because it was just getting a little too complicated. And so they came out with a third edition, but some of the, some of the armies had not been updated. But I think if you asked across the community, was this the right move to do, everybody will give you a resounding yes. Because they'd rather this have was a the fair right game. Yeah, they wanted a more balanced game that had more simple, clear rules than um, they were worried about it being a cash grab. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I think that that was, the, that was the biggest differentiator right there. Is like, why are you coming out with a new edition? Is it just because you're like, well, it's been exactly one year and it's time to put out a new edition so that we can get this money again? Cash um, in. You know? And and I think that it's funny because you see board games kind of do this a little bit, right? We just talked about yeah. a Dune game getting a refresh and a reboot yeah. with a new uh, movie logo on it that will probably sell more because it looks more updated. Right. You know? Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty much the same game just with a new edition label slapped on it, right? Because it has new artwork in it. So... Um, so, you know, war games aren't exclusively the ones that will go out and do a new edition. Uh, you know, you see it in books, you see it in, uh, board games, you see it in video games, you see it, all that kind of stuff. Um, I think it just comes across as it happening a little bit more often with war games because they are living games, you know, like it, it doesn't happen once every 30 years. Like maybe you get a new risk, uh, not risk game, a uh, new Axis and allies version, in 20 more years from now, you know, <laughs> like, like, okay. But like with, you know, Warhammer, it's going to happen every three years, roughly. So Dan, um, you know, games don't necessarily have to wait for a new edition to update themselves though. Right? No, they don't. But I would say the health of any game is, should be measured based on its ability to accept new players. Right. So, Sometimes an FAQ is good enough. Sometimes a uh, a bar uh, a band list will do the trick. I know Magic the Gathering uses band lists a lot. Yeah. Um, once they find a broken combo they weren't expecting, they have to go in and band cards, and that's a pretty easy thing to do. It's harder with models that people have invested money and yeah. time into. Versus, I know cards are worth a lot of money too, but somehow models get treated different than than rectangular pieces of cardboard for some reason. But if your game is at a point where interest is dying and sales are down and organized events are less are, are losing attendance, that's when you have to recalibrate. Right. And and so 
Does that always mean a new addition? Maybe, sometimes. That would really help. Um, what a new addition can do is you get to wipe the meta clean. Yeah. And you don't get a new addition regularly, so you better make good use of it, right? So if you're going right. to wipe the meta clean, you better start bringing in as many new people into tournaments as you possibly can and say, hey, we're all just figuring this thing out together. Let's figure it out. Versus a game that's gotten real calcified and there's elite players and the people who are in the top 10 are in the top 10 and it's really hard to break in. That is not a, a growth path for most of these war games. Right. Because if if the company's going to continue to sell you stuff, you they have to give you a shot, a fair shot. Yep. And if, if yep. you've reached, if the game has reached a point where you don't feel like it's fair, or you invested in the wrong thing, and no matter how hard you try, the thing you put your money into isn't going to win, then guess what? You're going to move on to something else. I know a lot of people that have dropped games and just gone completely away from competitive war games and jumped at RPGs. And right. they just said, we're tired of this. We're just tired of this rat race. We're going to go play D&D. I know whole podcasts that went down were like the podcast was to talk about. It was the main podcast for a particular war game that everybody listened to. And all the players just gave up one day and said, well, we're just doing D&D. <laughs> <laughs> and so what does that say about the health of that game, right? Yeah. Because it got to a point where the company wasn't putting, they were deprioritizing that product line. They were releasing new product lines. Um, and it became too much shampoo, shampoo, rinse, repeat, shampoo, rinse, repeat, right. Where the same things went over and over again. And, and, and that's, that means it's time to rethink the game. That's, that means it's time to like the chess pieces had to be refined over 1,300 years. And guess what? The King was too powerful and the Vizier was not powerful enough. That had to be balanced out to get the game we have today. Yeah. And I think it's important too that, um, like, you know, you'll get this happens a lot with Warhammer 40k. In fact, they just recently updated their, they call them data slates now, right? And that kind of goes into their lore yeah. of like data slates. And so they're updating and balancing the game every three months, according to them, yeah. right? Which is pretty often. But the thing is, is they've got a treasure trove of data coming out every weekend. There's a tournament right. somewhere that's providing data on like who's a strong faction, you know, like wh like who's winning, what's the meta list, you know, what's going on. And so I think that. I think that you can't discount the, you know, FAQs or the erratas or, you know, like the points rebalancing that you get, um, you know, very often within an addition because what that does is it keeps, it keeps uh, the game from being too broken. Yeah. Right. And it, just as you said that it's important to make sure that your game is accessible to everybody. If I go in and I'm like, oh man, I love these models and I buy that army and then I go against an army that is just absolutely broken. I'm right. gonna be like, I quit. This is I'm so done. stupid. I wasted my you know? money. Um, and you know, you know how it is. The meta will come and go, right? Like it's cyclical. Mm -hmm. You know, what's good today may not be that good in in you know three months, etc. Um, and you know, it's up to like good good generals is what we call them, right? Good players will know how to ride through those metas with right. the list that they have instead of chasing it, you know, 
um, a lot of times. Well, you and, know, and sometimes you can check out because the meta and there's like, let's say X-Wing introduced two new factions, right? They yeah. introduced the Separatists and the Republic. And some of us who were already five factions deep were like, I'm not buying two more. Right. And then they started winning. And then it was like, well, you guys suck. You know, yeah. it, it made it really hard to get enthusiastic about the game when it just seemed like you just had to chase the flavor of the month. Yeah, and that definitely. is like and like you said, good generals will just play their thing and they know how to use their pieces. But most of us in the bell curve, in the in the middle and in the back, in the in the fat and in the back of the bell curve suck just a little. Yeah. Right. And so managing the expectation of a new player, managing the expectation of your most elite players, I can't, yeah. I do not understand how these game designers can sleep at night because there's no way they're going to make everybody happy. It's almost impossible. <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. It's, it's a fool's errand. Yeah. Which yeah. is why I ra- rattled off this list of wargaming history going back 1,300 years, you know, because everybody keeps trying to turn the screws on this to get it right. And it never will be. <laughs> well, you know, and I think that that might be the dirty little secret, right? That's the Dread Pirate Robert secret of the yeah. whole thing, right? Oh, yeah. Which is that, is that there's no one Dread Pirate Roberts. Like, there's a lot of them. And so, you know, the thing is, is like, as they come out with editions, um, and, and I've learned this with Age of Sigmar, especially with their third edition that they've come out, right? They're turning the screws to make things interesting and not perfect necessarily. Mm. And I think that that is an interesting take on this because um, we all know that it's not going to ever be perfect. Like anyone who's really serious about wargaming knows that it will never be perfect, right? There's always going to be a strong meta. There's always going to be a weak meta. There's always going to be a strong army. There's always going to be a weak army. And again, it's cyclical. Like it'll change. You know, um, I talked about our friend Sergio he used to play Legion of Nagash, which was like a lot of ghosts and skeletons and stuff like that. And he completely switched because like the meta just crumbled out from under him. And like that army is hot garbage now. And he needed something else. Like it's really, even though he's a really good general, it's yeah. really, really hard to be competitive with that army because it just, it just kind of fell away. So he's like, I want to try something different. So he found another army that, um, uh, I think you have to be, in my opinion, a very good general to, to, use that army and he's a good one and so he's doing really well with it you know um but the point the you know the point being is that um things change and i think that if we understand that these are imperfect games that are you know they're pulling different levers to i think get different different experiences out of the sessions and they're always trying to make it better but sometimes it has to get a little worse to get a little better some you know sometimes that's when you need a new edition and it'll feel worse at first but then it makes a lot of sense yeah um you know it it just it's funny because warhammer 40k is in their ninth edition they've been out it's been out for two years now almost Mm. and they're looking at the seasons that um that uh that sigmar has age of sigmar is doing and they're kind of like a little jealous of it because they're seeing that you can start pulling some different level levers that make the game a little bit more interesting within the meta you know i've seen different companies farm team ideas like they'll say hey we'll take a a smaller a, a, a less profitable business line we'll dink around with the rules 
see if we get a better result and then yeah. bring that into the the big line which is mm-hmm. the big money maker and that makes total sense why they would do that you know it's yeah. less it's less less risky um so how often should additions come out i think we i think we answered that question which is yeah. to keep the game viable you better come up with a new addition and you have to please both ends of the bell curve <laughs> And, yeah. and sometimes that's what that's what that requires, you know. So I think I think with a Warhammer, um, it's every three years. I mean, if I were to put like a, a you know kind of back of the napkin math on this, mm-hmm. and the reason it's that much is because it takes them that amount of time to get through the factions with some updated rules, right? Right. And by the time they kind of come back around and they're like, okay, you know, ninety percent of our factions have updated rules. Um, it's now time to think about a new edition that may streamline this, right? So I'll be interested to see, though. I told you, you know, they're kind of doing this seasons thing. Um, Essentially, I think this next summer they're coming out with season two. I I mean, I have no idea what it is. There's a lot of speculation about it. But that's almost kind of a new mini mini, um, edition. Yeah. Right. It's definitely going to be three a uh, three dot one. You know. Um, right. And so, like, is that will that be enough to keep the game super fresh, keep it interesting, and players aren't clamoring for new rules? I and think I, that it'll be interesting. And we've been talking a lot about X Wing two point five. And even right. though they don't, tech, it's two point five is a colloquialism, right? We, the fans just named the latest version 2.5. Right, right. It's really like a 2.8 or a 2.9 because it's that big of a change. But it's still a lot of the core things that work in 2.0 still work, right? There's still like 80% of the fundamentals of the game are way intact. Yeah. And that's where you don't have to – there's still the – got to look at the ratio of baby to bathwater, yeah. It's like, what is working with this game? And are we complaining about it because we've got nit nats and meta problems? Or are we complaining about it because there's some fundamentals? Or if you look at the way the game is played today versus how we designed it in 1.0, has it gotten weird? Like you had mentioned in Sigmar that ranged ranged was where it was at. If you weren't yeah. if you were not doing ranged, you weren't winning. Well, it sounds like from the from the IP and from the the lore, you know, hand to hand and melee should be more common than than ranged, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Yep. So that means that's that that that's a telltale sign that something's got to give. Right. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. The you know, to kind of bring this full circle, I. I think that new additions are a great thing to the game. I know some people can kind of complain about them, like, oh, this is a money grab. But you you had talked about it earlier being an opportunity for new players to get in. Uh, I know I started a Space Marine Army in Warhammer 9th Edition. That's the first time I played 40K. Um, and it was good. Like, it, like, I had a good time with it. I realized that I liked Age of Sigmar a little bit better. I thought it was a little less complicated than 40k. And uh, so I'm going to kind of stick with Sigmar. But I still have, you know, a Space Marine Army that I'll probably play with uh, if somebody wants to play 40k with me in the future. Yeah. Probably more narrative stuff, right? Because I don't know if I want to wade into the competitive area. But the fact is, is that new edition got me into 
40k because it was a great opportunity to learn the rules and you know have other people teach me because you know it was new it was new so yeah I, and I I welcome them you know if you're gonna be a war gamer and I think a lot of people have been everybody when I when I started playing X-wing everyone was was complaining about games workshop because everyone had felt uh, everybody who had like ran away from games workshop into the arms of FFG X-wing had nothing good to say about the way Games Workshop was treating their players. Yeah. And um which by the way was probably very true. It was probably there was a lot of <laughs> there was a lot of truth to it. Now I was on the other side of the of the border of that conflict going, well, that doesn't affect me, but at the same time, if if you think about it, you you've got to keep your customers happy or there won't be customers anymore. Yeah. And you know, X-Wing blew up. The growth curve on it was nuts. And the the folks that had done some research on it, most of those people had been playing 40K and stopped. Right. Um, and that gave that game a huge shot in the arm that it's, it's still drafting off of today. It's not growing like that anymore. Yeah. But guess what? Guess what's growing again? 40K. Right. And because they've decided that Maybe we should listen to our customers. Maybe we have yeah. to optimize this experience because it's they're really selling an experience. The painting, the strategic planning, the list building, the getting out and playing in tournaments, it's the whole package. Mm-hmm. And if one of those pieces of the package ain't working, then um, they're going to lose money. And that means they got to let people go. Yeah, that, That's, you know... We don't talk about that side of, of things very often, but when bad choices get made in game design and people stop spending money, then human beings get fired and have to go find other jobs. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we have beat this topic to death, Justin. <laughs> but yes, games need to change. They need to live. Living games are good. Additions are good. We should embrace the future. Enjoy the past. It took me a long time to throw away my a lot of the tokens and cards I had from X-Wing 1.0. I had a lot of it, and I had a, just a yeah. tra- trash party. I posted photos of it on Discord, and people were like, you shouldn't have done that. I'm like, yes, I should have. Yes, yeah, I should right. have. Sometimes just throw it away and and point the boat towards the horizon and the future. Don't don't kill yourself living in the past. I feel bad for those guys playing those old games where oh, yeah. it's just them and their, their pals, and no one's getting it. No one knew it was getting into it. And, and that, I mean, that's it, right? Like, there's no new models coming out for it. There's no new rules coming out for it. They're just kind of stuck. They're, they're basically the Amish of gaming at this point, <laughs> right? Like Every game has those. There's guys still playing the Star Wars Decipher customizable card game. That game has oh, been yeah. out of print for Dude, there's guys still playing. Years. There's guys still playing, uh, you know, um, D&D ADD, right? Yeah. AD&D. So, yeah. No, I've like, I've talked to some DMs that are like, I do not want to learn any new rules. And I'm like, I have so many rule systems in my head. I get it now. I'm I'm, I'm halfway done with my 40s. My brain is <laughs> learning the Star Trek Modifius system has really hurt my brain. I remember oh. being a young 14-year-old kid. I could plow through an RPG book and go, yep, I could run this tomorrow. Not not over forty brain. It does not want to learn these things. The problem is, is I'll learn a new system and then I'll go to play it and I'll be like, yeah, sure. Like, go ahead and take that boon. <laughs> like, whoops, yeah, that's not? not even part of the system anymore. <laughs> but we're gonna roll with it, you know. Uh, and who cares? 
Yeah, exactly. Well, Dan, thank you for bringing up this topic. I thought I thought it was really good to talk about, you know, some of these new additions and why we have them and and, and where we go with them. And, uh, you know, the hardest part of it is just making sure that you get caught up with the new rules, right? Yeah. And and uh, that's where, you know, having a local community, a local gaming chat, game room chat helps a lot. Uh, I know that I've learned a lot of the rules just from hearing people being like, what, can you believe that they changed this? I'm like, oh, well, that's an interesting change. Yeah. Uh, you know, just, uh, just by kind of staying plugged in with the community and, and understanding where they're coming from. I know that it's helped me a lot uh, stay current and stay, you know, a little bit more relevant as, uh, as things change out from under my feet, basically. And, and it's it's good for us to bring in our different perspectives, right? We could talk about a specific game like Warcry, and then we can stand back and say, what are the common elements between this this war game and that war game, this skirmish game and that skirmish game? Yeah. And... And and there's a lot of commonalities. There's way more. Com- there's we have way more in common than we have any differences. Quite, yeah, for sure. Quite plainly, for sure. Well, thank you very much. Thank you everybody for listening to our show. Give us a like. Give us a subscribe. Uh, you know, share it with your friends on social media. Uh, everything everything that you guys do for us uh, totally helps us out. So, uh, go onto our Facebook page or Twitter. Find us at Tabletop and Beyond. You know, Facebook.com slash Tabletop and Beyond. Our Twitter handle is at Tabletop and Beyond. Hit us up. Let us know if there's any topics that you'd like to hear about in terms of board games, war games, and beyond. So uh, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, Thank you, we, everybody. And, we need yeah. more ideas. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're about 70-plus episodes in, and we're like, Dan can't talk about being a good GM anymore. We are done. <laughs> now nah, we've got some good stuff coming up, but... Uh, uh, you know, we just want to make sure that what we're talking about is definitely hitting on what you guys are interested in. So uh, if there's something specific you'd like to hear, just uh, just let us know. So thank you very much, and uh, have a good night, everybody. To Tabletop and Beyond!